Hello and welcome to the LAR Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by Medea Ocher, LARB's Managing Editor. Hi, Dea. Hi, Eric. Today we have a conversation with Ijeoma Luo, author of So You Want to Talk About Race, that we recorded at the LA Times Festival of Books. Yeah, I first read Ijeoma when she had her piece on Rachel Dolezal and Rachel Dolezal's autobiography, which I think came out a few years ago. Yeah, not to much fanfare. <laughs> not to that much fanfare, that's right. And I heard that there was only one piece that you needed to read about it, and you did not need to read anything else, and it was written by Ijuoma mm-hmm. Aluo. And it was truly a fantastic piece where she went and spoke with Rachel. Yeah, in her home in and her did an home. extended interview. And I still recommend that piece to everybody, because uh, if you're still curious about Rachel Dolezal, and you might be, that really is a fantastic piece to read because it really breaks down the many different ways in which not only is her performance offensive and problematic, Mm -hmm. but how one might get around the various issues that she brings up. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing that I liked about this conversation that we had with Ijeoma is how deftly she is able to nuance those conversations, right? right? She's able to pull apart, like, both how racism functions, why we are resistant to talking about race, thinking about the dialogues that we do have and how we can make those better and more impactful. And again, I just think she is an incredible, incredible thinker and like a great, great voice. Yeah, it was a pleasure having her on the show. All right. Yeah. Okay, let's get to that conversation. Let's do it. at the LA Times Festival of Books speaking with journalist, writer, and critic Ijeoma Aluo. Aluo's writing on feminism, race, and contemporary politics, among many other topics, have appeared in The Guardian, Jezebel, The Stranger, and Medium, among other important publications. Her latest book, So You Want to Talk About Race, a collection of essays on race and contemporary culture and politics, was published earlier this year by Seal Press. Welcome to the show, Ijeoma. Thanks for having me. So, first of all, it has been, I would imagine, a wild year for you. And if we just kind of rewind, so it's like you had this weird thing with Facebook where you were like briefly suspended because you called them out basically for not for not suspending people who were attacking you on the medium. Well, let's ask about that actually. Yeah. Would you tell us a little bit about that experience? Yeah, I went to, I was on a road trip with my children. Mm-hmm. We were gonna take a couple of weeks kind of away from everything, you know, writing about heavy topics, working all day. I was like, we're gonna, Go on a road trip, no internet, nothing. And we were in, where were we? Missouri. And I was trying to, Montana. We were in Montana, and I was trying to feed my children breakfast. The only place that was open was a Cracker Barrel, and I'd never been to a Cracker Barrel before. And it was a real surreal experience, because it's like if you took, like, your, like, racist grandma's garage and turned it into a restaurant. Like, that's (laughs) Cracker Barrel. (laughs) And my family and I were the only black people there. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking around. It's just this, like, sea of cowboy hats. Wow. And I made this quip on Twitter, like, are they going to let my black ass walk out of here? That was it. Moved on. And, like, plenty of people were like, girl, I know. What are you doing? Get out of there. Get out of there. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, this got picked up by, like, those kind of, like, 
conservative troll mongers yeah. who are, you know, whose goal is to try to find some weird bit of like liberal culture that can stoke outrage. And for some reason, this was the tweet that did it. I mean, I, I write 10 times more inflammatory things in my essays. Mm-hmm. But this tweet, this innocuous tweet, so all of a sudden my phone started blowing up. I'm on this, this road trip. And people were writing articles about it. It was turning up on all of these, like, you know, these hate farm clickbait mm-hmm. websites everywhere. And there were all different versions of the same article, which was like, racist black woman walks into Cracker Barrel. You won't believe what she said next. And uh, I was suddenly inundated with threats, like just... I couldn't even keep up. I would wow. try to scroll through my messages like on Facebook and 30 minutes later I still hadn't gone through the day. I was just scrolling down. And I would report the threats, I would report the comments I were getting that were, you know, explicitly racist. And every time Facebook would say it didn't violate standards. Yeah. And so out of frustration I just started screenshotting mm-hmm. these public posts that people were leaving and these threats that people were sending me that Facebook wouldn't do anything about. And it was really stressful because I'm also trying to drive, you know, 18 hours a day and give my kids this fun vacation while I'm getting threat after threat and like everywhere people can find me on. My mom's mm-hmm. calling me worried. And I would post a picture, you know, and say, oh, we're going to go to the Grand Canyon. And someone would say, oh, I hope you get pushed off the Grand Canyon. Oh, you know, oh I hope your family gets hit by a semi. You know, mm-hmm. it was just constant threats. And then we were <laughs> pulling into Disneyland and I was taking my stuff into the hotel and I look and Facebook had suspended me for posting screenshots of the threats I was getting on Facebook. (laughs) And it was a 30-day suspension. And that's kind of when I lost it. Like, I just kind of broke down in tears because just how complicit they were in this and how hard I had been trying to keep my Facebook page free of these threats and hate, and they weren't helping me. And then in my attempt to shed light on that, they had shut me down. So I just, you know, I quickly banged out a blog post on Medium and then took my kids to try to enjoy the rest of our day. Yeah. And it went viral. And before I knew it, it had like a million hits and people were reaching out. People, oh my goodness. And it's not new for black people and in particularly black women to get suspensions on Facebook for talking about issues of race. But I think because I had included, you know, the screenshots of what was happening, what was coming my way, and the whole context, it struck a nerve with people, and it would just end up being this huge blow-up that actually made me even later on my road trip than I had hoped to be. (laughs) And it's funny, because I still, at least once a week, will get a message from someone that randomly, you know, I'll post a picture of my makeup for the day, and someone will be like, how dare you slander the good people of Cracker Barrel? And I'm like, what are you talking about? Am I this weird horrific Groundhog Day where someone discovers the internet exists and they immediately find out that I made a mild joke about Cracker Barrel. Not even the most obvious jokes you could make about Cracker Barrel. That's like the obvious. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was, yeah, I could have. Also manifestly real for anyone who's ever been in a Cracker Barrel. It's it's not like you're describing some through the looking glass world that anyone walking into a Cracker Barrel couldn't understand. They literally had to pay a multi-million dollar settlement for racial discrimination against customers and staff. It's not as if I was just pulling this out of thin air. Right. Yeah, and also, I don't think anybody was aware of the good name of Cracker Barrel before. <laughs> can, can you talk a little bit, kind of building off of this, about the internet as kind of a medium for your writing and your voice? Like, how do you negotiate, on the one hand, the vast 
reach that you can have, right? And being able to be there for other people that you may not otherwise be able to connect with with also this kind of like, frankly, online terrorism that can be like lobbed against any voice that wants to kind of speak truth. At times it gets really tough. There is definitely a price to pay and there are people who go on the internet to make sure that people who are speaking about these issues pay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And their job really is to make that tax too high so that that space can be theirs again and you're not in it. And there are real efforts and I'll see people try to, people will tag like prominent right-wing trolls with anything I say that might be slightly controversial in the hope that that troll will then share it with a million people and I will once again be harassed. And that happens quite regularly. In fact, it just happened last week. And I have to be pretty vigilant about like blocking and then people get mad that I block, but I'm like, hey, I deserve to be in this space. And if it means that I have to block... hundreds of thousands of people literally in order to be able to maintain it I do but in some ways it's six of one half a dozen of the other I started writing because as a black woman what was happening to black people in the society was not something that anyone in my community my greater community in Seattle was talking about and it was suffocating me it was making me feel like I was losing my mind because you're being gaslit by the entire world like you are walking around in fear and terror and heartbreak And, you know, you go online and people are talking about what shoes they bought for the day and what movie they saw. And no one wants to engage with these tough issues of race, even though that's the reality that people of color can't avoid. And so if I were to give it all up today, I would go back to not being able to say anything and not being able to be heard and trying to have a job where it's inappropriate to talk about the realities of being a black woman in the world. And now because I have that and because I can say that and people can reach out to me and say, yes, I understand this is the same thing happens to me. And some people who didn't realize can say, oh, I didn't know that, you know, when I do things like this, I'm harming people. And then also, you know, a couple hundred thousand people hate me and send me slurs and send me threats. And I don't know which is worse. I just know I can't go back yeah. to the way I was before. Can I ask, I mean, this is maybe a personal question, but how old are your kids? My kids are 16 and 10. So something that I, while you were just speaking about that is you're on a road trip with your kids. How do you communicate with them about these kinds of issues, right? Because a 16-year-old might understand in a certain kind of way. Yeah. 10-year-old What do you say to a child, right? Like to communicate about what you're going through, why you might be upset, but also the limitations that you face in the world of talking about these issues. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's important to know that I don't know a single kid of color, especially a black kid who doesn't feel the full impact of racism in this society. From a very early age, the moment our kids are out in public, it hits them. Mm -hmm. So I can't shield them from that. I can try to prepare them. I can try to build a little space for their childhood. Mm. And so with issues like this trip, I really didn't want them to know what was going on. You know, they were 15 and 9 at the time. I wanted them to have a nice trip. You know, so much of my time is dedicated to my work. And writers, we write all the time. And I'm writing and I'm speaking and... You know, even though I'm at home, I'm working, you know, 16 hours a day. Yeah, and there's no boundary between yeah. being <laughs> done and not being yeah. done, Yeah, right? yeah. Yes. everyone's yeah. like, yeah, we know you're in your pajamas right now, but we also know your laptop's nearby. You can do this work. Yeah. Right? And I wanted to shield them from this. And I, they knew something was up, you know, mm-hmm. but I was just trying to keep it cheery. I was trying to keep it going. And I just said, you know, something weird is happening in the internet. It's not a big deal. And it wasn't really until... 
we were supposed to end at a wedding, one of my closest friend's wedding, and I hadn't seen her in years since she had moved away. Mm. And we were on a timeline, but the delays caused by dealing with all of this and like managing all that, I was gonna miss the wedding. And when I realized that, like the last day of my trip, I just started bawling and my kids were like, I'm not a crier, especially Uh around them. And they were just frozen in the backseat. And like my teenager kept like trying to come up with like, Go get mom a snack. Yeah. <laughs> like they know yeah. something something big has gone down. Yeah. yeah. Go get yeah. mom a snack is so cute. And it was like I stopped to get gas and I came out. They were like cleaning the car with the little squeegees. I mean, they were just like trying so hard to like put, you know, some joy back and into comfort, it. Yeah. But you know, it is tough. It's yeah. really tough. But it also helps them because at times children of color feel really helpless. Parents are out there, you know, the grown-ups are screwing things up for them, you know, and especially yeah. when it comes to issues of race. And so I think for my kids, knowing that I get to go out there and say something and be heard, that matters to them a lot. And it makes them feel a little less disempowered, you know? And knowing that they can engage in these topics too, and knowing that they have space in our house to have these conversations because they know I'm comfortable with them, helps them as well. And so I think at first it was weird for them, really weird having mom who's boring and at home all the time. also has this public persona and this public life and they didn't quite know what to make of it when people would like walk up to me in the grocery store and say something to me Mm -hmm. but now they're proud and as they are you know engaging in their own protests and in you know their own conversations knowing that like they have a mom that's not going to get mad at them for speaking their voice and they have a mom that's like can give them resources and now my 10 year old he's so cute you know he writes his own essays and then has me wants me to post them on social media because he wants my followers to read what he thinks about issues <laughs> he's using race. mom as yeah. a signal boost yeah. yeah i mean he keeps breaking his computer too and so okay you know, he, <laughs> he's like until my blog is up and running you know can you post this up here that's for me that's kind of amazing it is it's Because like as a for a ten year old to feel like oh hey I have something to say and I I know that there's a space out there to say it that's incredible yeah yeah and I think like that's been great for them to see that they watched this from the inception and they Mm -hmm. to see that there is a space for them and they don't have to have particular credentials to be heard and that their life experience does matter and their voice matters and I try to give them that space I figure if it's going to encroach upon their time that they get to claim space in fact I had an event where I was speaking about my book Mm -hmm. and my I had mentioned an analogy that kind of had mentioned my younger son and he was in the audience Mm -hmm. and he like gave me this look (laughs) he gave you a stink eye and I said okay well you know you just think up because then since I said something that embarrassed you, you will at the end of this talk be able to come and say something that embarrasses your mother, but be careful because I'm still your mother. And so, <laughs> wow. So he, he came up and did an impression of me when I'm busy and not paying attention. <laughs> the crowd thought it was hilarious. So he did better than I did. That's really funny. It's very, also a very generous offer. <laughs> well, it's totally fair. You know, he yeah. was there. Yeah. He, I hadn't asked him, you know, yeah, so yeah, turnabout's yeah. fair play. Right. I wanted to ask you about both how response to the book has been for you, kind of what the afterlife of putting this out into the world has been. And also since the book is about, and you talk in the book about how the urgency of talking about race and the fact that nobody wants to talk about it. And you even admit yourself like, I don't like talking about it. No person of color that I know likes doing this, right? 
how do you think the way that we talk about race or the conversations that we have about race have changed in, say, like, the past 10 years? I think that they're just now really starting to change. Mm. I would say it's far, far overdue. We've talked about race for decades now as if the talk itself is the action. Yes. You know, we think it becomes like a group therapy. We think, you know, we will heal the wounds if we can mm-hmm. all cry about what's happening. But the truth is, is, you know, you talk about what's happening to you with a white friend. They cry because they're sad about it. And then you go out and the exact same thing happens to you the next day. And there's only so many tears you can cry. And then they feel like they've done something like, oh, I felt bad for a day. I felt guilty. Yeah. Whew, you know, that's my penance one step greater towards, you know, racial equity. And we talk about race as if it is about emotion, as if it's about understanding and misunderstanding, and it's Mm -hmm. about intention, when really it's about action. And, like, what I've been focused on doing and what I know, and I'm not new to this. I mean, if you go back and read Baldwin even, like, what black people who've been writing on race for a long time have been focused on doing is getting people to see action beyond intention. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it does require, of course, that you engage intention, that you get people emotionally invested, but then they have to do the work. And so the conversations I have, I'm trying to get people to be more conscious, to set out their goals ahead of time, to know that you're having a conversation so that you can find opportunity to act. You can find opportunity Mm. to make change in your day-to-day life and the way in which you're interacting with the systems that you participate in. And I think that that's important because what we have right now is so much emotional labor being done by people of color in these conversations and it goes nowhere. And you can have it a hundred times and maybe one person will make an impact, but that is in no way how you enact systemic change. And I think we have this weird individualistic idea that we are so important as individuals that if someone dedicated a year to winning us over, that would be worth it. <laughs> and it's mm, just not. Mm, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And You mean this idea that it's like, if I can change one mind, yeah, that that yeah. would actually make a difference. Yes. And, and it I, doesn't really. It doesn't. And it's really the people whose minds need to be changed that are kind of feeding that. No, I'm worth sure. it. I'm yes. worth it. Right. Don't give up on me. Yeah. Keep yeah. trying. And I get these comments all the time. Don't give up on me. Keep yeah. trying. And I'm like, hey, I just need you to do better. And also, it's not about you. Yeah. It's, <laughs> right. it's right. about the system yeah. that you participate in. Yeah. And so I'm definitely, you know, I've been trying to move those conversations and less about how much I can make a crowd cry so that they feel sad and then they leave feeling like they've done something and more about so that I can get them to see the systems they're participating in, to see that their actions, regardless of intention, regardless of if they feel sad or happy or anything, are participating in systems of oppression and decide whether or not they're going to make a change. Otherwise, all you're doing is you're just, you know, you're watching these tragedy porn films, but in real life. And these are real people whose pain is being kind of exploited and we're not getting anywhere in it. And so I think a lot of people now are trying to move. People of color have been trying for a very long time, but now with social media, I think has been helping elevate our voices, helping people see the pattern in that. You know, Mm -hmm. we've been trying to move these conversations away from I sat with a person of color, I hugged them. You know, I talked about the racist beliefs I had and then they told me I'm a human being and I said oh you are and we hugged and that racism's over right it doesn't matter because if you you can love as many people of color as you want but if you still vote the same way you always voted if you still neglect to ask the same questions of your institutions of your boss of your school board 
then you're still participating in the system of white supremacy and racial oppression. Mm -hmm. And that's really where we're trying to move that focus. So that's where I've been trying to move that focus. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at the LA Times Festival of Books at the University of Southern California. We've been speaking with Ijeoma Oluo, author of So You Want to Talk About Race. We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. We have Hanif Abdurraqib, author of They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us, back in the studios with us today to talk about a favorite author of his. A big favorite of mine and someone who I like to think that my work is kind of in the lineage of, if not for no other reason, because I think that like the writers who worked with him and inspired him also worked with and inspired me in some ways. So yeah, Lester Bangs, and mm-hmm. most notably his collected work, Psychotic Reactions and Carburetor Dung, which is kind of a collection of his work from about like 73 or 74 until the early 80s. And it's really sprawling. Some of the stuff is like much weightier and heavier than others. You know, there's a profile in The Clash, which is just like massive and very long, but deeply good. What's most delightful about the book to me is there's a section of the book, which is kind of like a series of interactions with him and Lou Reed, either in person, him interviewing Lou Reed or his his interactions with the work of Lou Reed. And I think it's the best way, it's the best example of watching a writer who reveres an artist and loves an artist enough to go hard at them to see that played out is really fun the tension and the beauty in that where it's like i love this artist so much i'm going to critique them harder than anyone else and him and lou reed had this really great relationship with that where you know they fought their interviews they're like always fighting but they're like fighting to a greater point and i I think that's really beautiful i think the critic artist relationship i would love to see more of that where you find a critic who hones in on a single artist and kind of does the work of the critic and holds them accountable. And that artist pushes back on that critic and holds that critic accountable. Have you ever had an experience like that? Um, yeah, I think so. Once or twice. Mm-hmm. I, won't, I won't name the musician, but there's a musician from a band that originated in Ohio. And anytime we, we've interviewed a few times, and I, I feel like it's always lovingly tense. Interesting. Yeah. That. The Lester Banks book sounds fantastic. Would you tell our listeners again what it's called? It's called Psychotic Reactions and Carburetor Done. Thank you so much, Hanif. Thanks so much. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Ijeoma Luo, author of So You Want to Talk About Race. I really like what you say about this distinction between feeling or generating a feeling and actually taking an action. Because I think that a lot of, absolutely what you're saying, that a lot of the approaches that we've had to the conversation are about like, well, if I emote, if I feel, then that's enough. And feel, and, and we also have, and I don't think it's totally wrong that feeling changes mm-hmm. a person. I think that that can be true, but the, feel, the change the feeling causes is not itself enough, right? Yes. That you have to like go on and do something else. So like, where do you think that part of the dialogue is going? I know that, do you think that that's something that we're actually, I know that's part of your book, but do you think that we're seeing that kind of imperative on a larger scale? I would say yes and no. Okay. I would say it's definitely where a lot of writers of color have been pushing 
for yeah. a very long time. And in fact, I, even in fiction, we're writing more about the well-meaning white people who, no matter how well-meaning they are, are still acting in harmful ways. Mm-hmm. But there's also been a very strong pushback against that because for a long time there has been that kind of liberal white person whose identity is built on their love of people of color. And they've been able to center themselves in these progressive movements and movements for racial justice. And when the dialogue changes and suddenly their feelings aren't enough, their emotions aren't enough, and a light's being shined on the ways in which they're still perpetrating oppression, they feel displaced and they feel harmed. And so I'm seeing it going in two separate ways, where people of color are really pushing and making some progress in this narrative of, you know, we really just don't care about your intention. We care about your actions. And then a lot of like liberal white narratives saying, why don't we get credit for our intentions anymore? Doesn't it matter that we're trying? This is why Trump won, because nice people are being told that they're racist, you know? And, And so it's kind of going both ways, but I think it's important to realize that at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is to not make people of color feel more loved and feel, you know, more joyful. We're trying to remove the systems that are crushing and killing us. And if you honestly think that you can love your way into a school board that doesn't discriminate against people of color or into textbooks that don't erase people of color or into police systems that don't criminalize people of color or into governments that don't represent people of color, then you don't know how systems work at all. (laughs) And we have to really move towards practical things because when we look financially, when we look from a health standpoint, when we look from a safety standpoint, it's actually killing us. It's not just because we're walking around sad that people don't like us, you know, and and we need to move away from that. I'm curious how writing and how maybe your writing plays plays into that because I, I think something that I, I know personally is uh, can be difficult because writing so often is saying something and not necessarily doing anything, right? And there are many writers who struggle with that tension because, well, I don't know, should I just go be a social worker instead that seems right and and I think even when you're a kid and and you're you're out of college or whatever you're sort of figuring out what you want to do you're like well is this a useful way for me to live my life and use my skills like I I don't know so I wonder if there's do you feel a tension within what is your talent and your job and then this pull to action or maybe are they not intention at all they're the same if I feel attention, but I always feel a frustration, mm-hmm. most definitely. I write very systems focused. You know, I usually have to get that emotional buy-in, right, to get people to pay attention who would not otherwise. And then I try to focus on the practicalities to mm-hmm. give people steps to take. The frustration, of course, is in the vast majority of people who don't want to then take those steps. And I can't walk people through that. And that does get very frustrating. Mm -hmm. People come up to me time and time again, how much they love my work, and they're crying about how my work touched them. There's a lot of people crying at you. So many people. (laughs) She's just batting back the feelings (laughs) almost every turn. I am shocked. It's so funny because my my brother, Aham, he's a musician, and he's really Mm -hmm. well-known around Seattle and striking. Like, there's hardly any black people in Seattle. He's six foot six, and he plays in all the clubs. So everyone in Seattle, they can recognize him before they'll recognize me. Mm -hmm. And he's married to Lindy West. So he's married to a writer. He's sisters of another writer. And he's kind of, he's like, I've worked out a system for which crying white lady who they're kind of come talk to me about when they walk up to me. And he's like, if 
she's got great makeup. That's you. It, he's like, it's a toss up. If it's an NPR bag, he's like, if it's a Black Lives Matter shirt, it's gonna be you. He's like, if it's like some sassy like donut shirt, it's gonna be Lindy. He's like, if it's some like feminism is awesome, it's gonna be Lindy. He's That's like, I've really got it worked funny. out. Like before they hit me, like, yeah. Who they're gonna be. And it's and just, just like a sea of like white crying women behind him being like, excuse me, um, yeah, excuse me. <laughs> yeah, and he posted this on my Facebook and then there was a couple of like local white ladies who were like, oh no, that's I'm me. so sorry, that was I walked yeah. up to you the other day and you know, and it's, yeah, so it's a lot of it and it's, yeah. I wish people understood the toll that that could take uh, yeah, right. to have someone, you're talking about the pain you're actually living. And so then to, like, have yeah. a white person who's never lived in a day in their life crying because hearing you talk about your pain made them feel something, even though they Sad. haven't done yeah. anything yeah. about it, yeah. can feel very exploitative. Um, yeah. I, want, I want action. Yeah. That's what I want from people. And so I, that's what I continuously push. But it's obvious that most people will read my work and not do anything with it mm-hmm. um, and it's obvious by the way that they comment to me the way they talk to me where you can tell they're not even absorbing what I'm saying even my 10 year old picked up on it he asked me really? the other day and he was like mom a lot of people read your work right and I said yeah he said but most of them don't do anything with it do they and I said no and he's like oh so they're just fans <laughs> I said yeah I guess. And so, you know, it's... That's a good way to put it. That's a very generous way to put it. (laughs) And it is frustrating, and I'm constantly trying to push and reiterate and Mm -hmm. push back on people who think that because they've read my books or like my work that they can violate my boundaries as a black woman or they can make assumptions about me. And I'm constantly having to... And it, it hurts my feelings each time. I know some of these people. I see them commenting all the time. I see them sharing my work to have to be like, excuse me, right? <laughs> yeah. can you not do this? Um, to have to reset, it is disappointing. But at the same time, I hear from a lot of people of color who mm-hmm. are able to use my work. And like my goal, I write for people of color. Even mm-hmm. if my audience at times a lot of times, are white people. I'm writing for the benefit of people of color. I'm Mm -hmm. writing for people of color who don't have space and a voice. And so I get so much joy from hearing, and now it's quite regularly I hear from people of color who are like, you know, look, my racist in-laws, I was done. We've had this conversation a hundred times. I just printed out your essay. I said, don't talk to me until you've read this. And then we can have a better conversation. You know, and like people are like, look, I've bought this book. I've given it to my boss. I've given it to my, you know, and now they're coming back to me in these topics that would always stop us. And it was so frustrating to have to have it over and over again. We're able to make some progress. And so that's really where I care about it. If it's making the lives of people of color even a little bit easier in these conversations, if they need to get a buy-in from someone to move a project forward or even just to make their lives go a little more smoothly and they can't explain it because the person's either too emotionally involved in the conversation with them or they just don't have quite the right dialogue to be able to have that conversation. If they can, you know, take a chapter of my book or take one of my essays and go here. And I see it. It's so funny. Like someone on Twitter the other day <laughs> said, don't even at me until you've read this because I don't want to have this conversation anymore. And that's to me, like that fills me with joy because that is putting my, my, book to use mm-hmm. and it is helping people in those incremental things where they're you know and I'm hearing from people whose work projects on racial equity are moving forward with the help of this work because with intention they're sitting down 
and kind of working through those tough spots. They have it written. You can get that emotional distance from it. And then they can get down to business. And that's the most I can hope for at this time. Um, can, yeah. What do you have on tap next? Like, what are you working on right now, if you can talk about it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so right now, I am traveling a lot for... For, for, for the, the book. book. Right. Yeah. And so that's always frustrating because I don't get to write nearly as much as I want to. And writing sure. is kind of my wealth that, you know, I have to dip into. But I am getting ready now to work on my proposal for my second book. And I am trying to dig a little deeper. Are we still be... in the, no, are we still nonfiction essays? Yes. Okay. I would love to get into fiction. And it's something I would love to have time to take classes on because... Mm. Fiction and nonfiction are such a whole different, different animal, disciplines. Yeah. Yeah. And I have kind of my nonfiction game down, and I want to stretch. You know, I'm still a writer who loves writing. So I would love to be able to stretch into new skills and try new things. My project that I'm envisioning for my next book is related to race, but much more, I feel like, deeply academic and something that mm. I think I would have more fun with. This book was not fun. It's not fun to, like, <laughs> dig into your life and talk about yeah. drama in, in the hopes that people will use it for better conversations. Yeah. Um, but this next one for me, it's, oh, I'm curious about this topic around mm -hmm. race, and I want to write about race and economy and whiteness, and I'm curious about it. And I hope other people will be. And I'm looking forward to diving into that. I'm also going to be doing some film work um, with my brother. So oh, that, will be, that will be fun and interesting as well. So I'm definitely going to be having a busy next couple of years. Okay. Um, I'm looking forward to getting into it. I love talking to people about my book. But, you know, I'm an introvert and I'm a writer for a reason. It's because I don't like talking to people face-to-face -face usually. I want to get back to thinking and writing and creating. And I'm looking forward to it. We are too. Um, can you also give us a sense of who are your stylistic influences? Like when you talk about really liking and getting your nonfiction game down, right? Like who are the writers that really helped you to make your way to your own voice? You know, it's funny. Most of the people I read have a very different writing style from me. You know, I read a ton of Toni Morrison. Like I read mostly growing up, I read Toni Morrison and Kurt Vonnegut. Those okay, were the two okay. I read. And what I got from them wasn't, I would say, stylistic, but I think it definitely informed my heart. I connected to the way that they okay. wrote. Um, you know, I connected to the uh, beauty and the pain that Morrison was able to see and to elevate and the deeply human stories she was able to tell in some really fantastic ways. And I connected to the strange optimism that Vonnegut had, where That's he was, you know, the potential that he saw for humanity was always so great, and he was constantly disappointed and constantly heartbroken, but he still, every novel started with that great potential for what people could yeah. be. And that's kind of the way I, I saw the world. And I wanted to find a way to communicate that. But I've never really had a fantastical imagination as mm -hmm. a person. So I would say my writing style is mostly informed by my political science degree. You know, I spent a lot of time writing and reading, um, you know, like white papers. Right, <laughs> and policy like memos. That. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. And a lot of times in my spare time, I will dig back into that kind of really unsexy reading. But for me, especially as someone with ADD and who loves systems, getting to that point 
is how I've always communicated. It's how I communicated through college, and it's how I like to, you know, think about these complex issues. I like to look at systems, see how they connect, find where that crucial point is that I feel like people are missing, and communicate yeah. that. Mm -hmm. And so that I think has informed me as well. Um, and a lot of people who have political science degrees, where they realize I have one, they're like, "Yeah, I, I can hear I that see in that, your yeah. work because yeah. you just yeah. you make a point. You know, you'll you'll get that zinger in when you need to, but then you're like, boom. Now let's get to the practicalities. We've laid out what we need to in order to get you here and so that you're caught up now let's move forward yeah. and that's kind of my style last question um the panel that you're on today at the la times book festival is called black girl magic and something that i i'm curious about is how how you relate to that phrase partly because there's a part of it that feels black women are are also people mm -hmm. <laughs> right and so the magic part seems like potentially counter that, counter feeling as if, oh, this is also just a human, but it's also a statement of power, strength, etc. How do you relate to it? How do you understand it? I would say it depends first on who's saying it right. and in what context, right? Black girls are magic. And what, mm -hmm. I, what, I try, what I tell a lot of people is, you know, black women are strong and resilient and amazing, and they shouldn't have to be. And I think that we have to remember that. That yes, mm -hmm. we survive incredible hardship and we hold so much together for our society that's trying to pull us apart and pull our families apart. And we have every right to be proud of that. And we shouldn't have to go through any of it. Right. And we will still be as wonderful when we don't have to go through that. And I think like we should always, people, you know, people say, oh, you're so strong, oh, blah, blah, blah. And yeah, I am. And I would love it if people would kind of come with some of that burden because mm -hmm. you yeah. still get tired and it still takes its toll. Right. And so I think that we deserve to be incredibly proud of what we have survived as a people. You know, I talk to black children and uh, the ways in which they try to navigate the world even at a very young age, knowing how people perceive them and trying to stay safe, while also trying to find joy and be kids. And we don't get any credit for what that takes. We have people who look at us as if we were made to carry that burden. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's inherent in us. It's not inherent in our nature. What we do to survive doesn't mean it's inherent in our nature. It still takes its toll. We still have to compensate in other places where we don't get to fully live our lives. Mm -hmm. And so I would love if people did appreciate that, you know, I, right. who would black women be if society valued the resiliency and the creativity we have? If society truly said, wow, that's worth something to us. Mm -hmm. That's worth something in the job market. That's worth something, you know, in our history books. What would we be then if we were valued as people? And if we were seen and said, thank you, and we're so sorry because we know that must have hurt. And so I say both, you know, have absolute pride in what you do, but also know that if you're tired as a black woman and if you're hurting as a black woman, that that's the natural way to feel. And you can be proud of what you've done, but also know that you have every right to know it shouldn't be that way and to be upset that it is that way. Mm -hmm. And I wish that other people saw it that way too so that they could come and try and lift some of that burden. Thank you so much for coming and talking to us, Ijoma. Thank you. We've been speaking with Ijioma Luo, author of So You Want to Talk About Race. The publishing industry is undergoing a momentous revolution. 
And the Los Angeles Review of Books USC Publishing Workshop can prepare you to be part of that exciting future. During an immersive five-week summer program, participants will be instructed in the varied aspects of digital and print publishing through real-world hands-on experience by our faculty and lecturers representing companies such as Red Hen Press, Time Inc., Simon & Schuster, Yale University Press, FSG, Harriet Tubman Press, University of California Press, and many other literary agents, publicists, and marketing agencies. The workshop is now accepting applications for the 2018 session, which will be held from June 24th through July 27th at the USC campus in downtown Los Angeles. For more information, including details on scholarships and other funding opportunities, please visit the workshop website at thepublishingworkshop.com. That's thepublishingworkshop.com. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Lyra Smith. Our researcher is Chloe Chap. Production assistance is provided by William Broaden, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levins. Our interns, Samson Amore, Natasha Boyd, and Joaquin Perez. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful recording studios in the heart of Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm Eric Newman. Thanks for listening to the LARV Radio Hour.